Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. ES Audio. Welcome to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm Nick Curtis, Chief Theatre Critic. I'm Nancy Durrant, Culture Editor. And I'm Nick Clark, Deputy Culture Editor. Here's what we've got coming up on this episode. Up first, we'll be reviewing Pygmalion at the Old Vic, directed by Richard Jones. He's no right to take away my character. You're an ungrateful, wicked girl. This is my return for offering to take you out of That stars Patsy Ferran as Eliza Doolittle and Bertie Carvel as Henry Higgins. For our second review, it is Beautiful Thing at Stratford East. Have you ever kissed anyone? Looking like this... You ain't ugly. They've made me ugly. I don't think you're ugly. I think we better get some sleep. Written by Jonathan Harvey and directed by Anthony Simpson Pike, this play is celebrating its 30th year. Every day's a good day with the things that you do. And our guests this week are Tom Ling and Nick Butcher, two of the writers behind Little Big Things, the new musical at, at the Soho Place Theatre in London. I want to work with Hannah Waddingham. I think she's coming into her own and she is an example of the amazing theatre actresses that we have in this country. Hugh Jackman. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously, I watched watched him do uh, Oklahoma at the National and I was just like absolutely blown away. Should we write a two-hander for Hugh Jackman? (laughs) I think just bring the music man over and put them both in it. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm back from holiday. Really resentful. Really resentful. <laughs> uh, what's been going on? It's actually it's very nice to have you back. Nice to have yes. the gang all back together. Yay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Nick Clark, I think you want to tell us about Starlight <laughs> Express, don't you? After the massive news last week of a major musical arriving in 2024 at the Devil Wears Prada in October, there is another one, but this time it's a revival. Starlight Express is chugging back into London very nice. in uh, June next year. Press nights in the end of June, June 30th. Now, I saw Starlight Express when I was about 10 years old, and it did leave an impression on me. I very much remember the skating and the weird costumes, and is now the time to revive it? Well, one of the the amazing things about Android Webber is that he does regularly revisit past hits. He's he's got a great dedication to his back catalogue, which I don't think is purely driven by profit. I think he genuinely quite likes... Tr- taking these things out, shaking the dust off them, tinkering with them, seeing you know how they how they shape up. Mm. I saw it in the sort of in the mid nineties, I think, when the standard launched.
launched a listings magazine. It had been running at the Victoria Palace for quite a few years. It was undeniably exciting having mm. these people whizzing around you on these tracks sort of built out into the auditorium. Yeah. I seem to remember I wrote a sort of slightly um, snotty review referring to rail privatisation at the time. <laughs> 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 taking Which yourself a bit seriously. Maybe taking myself a little <laughs> yeah, bit yeah, seriously. Yeah. I think Lloyd Webber had just been made a Tory peer at that stage, although he then right. went cross-bench after that. But uh, anyway, it'll be interesting to see how it stands up. As I say, the only song mm. I remember in that is one called He'll Whistle At Me, which I think you know, doesn't really stand yeah, the test. Yeah, might, <laughs> might need a bit of a tweak. Might, one. yeah. I have never seen Starlight Express, and yeah. I put on Twitter or whatever the hell it's called now, just sort of, oh, you know, Starlight Express is coming back. Is this a good idea? And I got very, very mixed response. <laughs> I have to say. Like, some people right. were like, oh my God, that was my gateway drug to London, as a friend of my friend said, which I thought was really sweet. But then other people were going, worst experience I've ever had in the theatre, <laughs> only thing I've ever left in the interval, and I was 10. <laughs> you know, if Starlight <laughs> Express was your gateway drug, you'd be massively disappointed by the lack of roller skating in London thereafter. Really. Somebody else did say that it's you know very much kind of related to your love of wheels. Like, yes. There are so many wheels. Well, maybe we should take a leaf out of Germany's book, because Starlight Express has been running non-stop for more than 30 years in Germany. In Bochum, there is a purpose-built theatre, and I wonder whether this will, what, will be what helps the revival. This is a purpose-built theatre as well, exactly. isn't it? Or more or less. Well, yes, it will be. I think they're refitting out the refitting troubadour, it. aren't they? Yeah, which, yeah. Are, which are themselves very flexible theatres. Well, they're basically, basically a, shed, they're basically like a, a really, flat really shed. So you yeah. could do a lot more uh, than you could with a traditional West End theatre. Yeah. So actually, in terms of staging, this is kind of a good time to bring yeah, it back. Yeah, yeah, actually, sure. the troubadours work best for these kind of things. Yeah. They, they had newsies on at the, at the Wembley mm. Troubadour, the Disney musical, and they sort of recreated old school, I can't remember if it's New York, Chicago, but old sort of tenements and gantries and things like that. And that was the first time the troubadour actually felt like a real theatre mm. rather than a shed with seats in it which right, is what yeah. it always felt like before maybe it'll be good but it was funny reading this thing about the fact that it's still been running for 30 years or, yeah. uh, and more in Germany it, it made me think of sort of you know those soldiers at the end of World War Two. <laughs> who yes. hadn't realised the war was over <laughs> and sort of come out of the jungle about four years later and it just feels like, oh, it's just been carrying on and, you know, uh, but, but maybe they know something we don't. Maybe now is a good time to go. Somebody, yeah, somebody did say, I mean, Bochum has a, has a population, I think, about 300,000. So who are these people? Who are well, a tourist beating a path to it or is the entire population the, of Bochum going to see it every there's week? A, there's a piece from <laughs> in, in The Guardian from about six years ago when they covered it and apparently 16 million people had seen it by then. So... I don't know how many more have seen it since, but it's in the Guinness Book of Records. So, you know, it's doing something right. The theatre business is insane, isn't it? It is. It's absolutely mad. It must be costing a fortune. Yes. Mm. We were talking earlier about the most expensive show that's uh, going to be in Broadway. Most expensive revival, apparently. So, uh, which I think they're they're making that as a nice distinction. Obviously, something, there's some other sort of behemoth out there which opened on Broadway um, and cost even more. But yes, Cabaret at the Kit Kat Club, Rebecca Frecknell's production that's been running at what was the Playhouse House has now become the Kit Kat Club for a number of years. Uh, is going to open on Broadway at a cost of $24.5 million, which is apparently Wowza. the biggest uh, budget for a revival, and it's going to take them a long time to recoup. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, um, just wait and see how costly the tickets Eddie, are. <laughs> Eddie, yeah, Eddie Redmayne has been apparently guaranteed. He's going back into it for the Broadway cast, and oh. I have heard some kind of interesting stuff that I was told off the record about potential casting for Sally Bowles. Ooh. 
and I can Ooh. say no more. Torture would not ring it from <laughs> <laughs> Or possibly switching off the mic. Yeah. Even, <laughs> having, even having to see Stalin Express in Borkham every night <laughs> for 30 years would not ring it from my lips. But but no, that's that's kind of interesting. And, I mean, and talking about the, the bonkers finances of theatre, we've also, another row this week, just to mention it briefly, although I'm kind of bored with the theater, expensive theatre ticket row, mm. Plaza Suite, £395, um, top price tickets there. For which you get three glasses of champagne and something else, you know. Uh, that's what three glasses of champagne cost in the West End. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the cost of living crisis yeah. for you, writ large, isn't it? I mean, I sort of, part of me was looking at this, and I, I agree theatre tickets are generally too high, it's too expensive, it's elitist, but equally, is, is theatre all going to be homogenous? Do they, are, or are they going to be sort of, for, you know, theatre for the for the Ferrari guys and theatres for the mini drivers. You know, mm. I mean, it, it, there's obviously people out there who are prepared to pay three hundred ninety five pounds mm. for three well, yeah. glasses well, of flat if, champagne. Well, and, and if if they prepared to pay three hundred ninety five pounds to watch, uh, and you know, it's Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick, yes, isn't yeah. it? Like it's yeah. an event. It is it's an definitely event. an yeah. event. And if there are people prepared to pay just under four hundred quid for that, and as you say, three glasses of champagne, and if that means that you know somebody else who can't and wouldn't can pay 25 or 40 quid for a ticket somewhere else in the theatre because of those people who mm. are paying that much money, then I just, I really don't think it's an issue. And that's no. certainly the argument that producers make, that they would not be able to do the cheap tickets yep. without the premium tickets. And they, you know, I was speaking to a producer friend and he pointed to it being a very small minority of... The, the, the premium tickets are a very yeah, small it's minority. It's about two or three rows. It's just it? a great way of inventing exactly. things for the super rich to <laughs> spend <laughs> money on, isn't it? Better on the arts than on a super yacht. Can you imagine yes, having right. that job? Just like, you know, yeah. if you were the person who made up the really expensive stuff for the people. Which yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that would be such a great I once wrote a story about a wine brand, which I won't name, who, who would sell you a wine, a sort of vintage, a, a, you know, sort of very, very high-end wine in a specially designed sort of ampoule and somebody would come from the company and knock the top of the ampoule off with a special hammer <laughs> so you could drink it. So you're spending sort of thousands of pounds on an ampoule, which is then smashed in front of you. That's the definition of the super rich. I think. <laughs> <laughs> so if they want to spend, you know, £395 to bring to help bring Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick to London, yeah, fine, then fine. fine. And I just would like to say, uh, happy anniversary, Nick Curtis. Ah, it yes, is the 30th anniversary much. of Nick Curtis's first theatre review in The Standard. I, which he nearly missed. Which I did miss, actually. It was <laughs> earlier this year. I thought it was next year, but it was only when I was looking out my review for Beautiful Thing, which we're going to talk about um, later, which I reviewed for Time Out at its first production 30 years ago, that I realised there was a review next to it from the stand. This is, of course, pre-internet, um, so these are actually literally cut out and pasted into a cuttings book that what I had. What was it? Days. What did you review? Well, that was, the very first one I did was an Australian play about an all-female singing group. I'd reviewed it on the Fringe for time out, then the standard asked me to see the transfer to the Shaw Theatre, which had an actress from Prisoner Cell Block H in it. Oh, wow. I have a feeling it was then made into a film with Chris O'Dowd years later, but I think the title might have been changed. If there's anyone out there who can <laughs> remember this show, remember what I said about it, please do let me know. But yes, it was 30 years ago this year that I wrote my first piece for The Standard. Well, congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm mildly ashamed that my career hasn't progressed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm basically doing, doing what I did 30 years love. ago. Yeah. I'm doing what I love. Yeah, um, absolutely. Speaking of which, should we just get into our first review this week? Yeah, let's it's do that. Pygmalion at the Old Vic. 
I didn't get to see press night of this one, I think because I was <laughs> I was in Greece, uh, but I'm hoping to see it soon, although it has had quite mixed reviews, I must say. Nick and Nick, you saw this one together. Who's going to kick off? Well, we had, I think, varying reviews ourselves or, var- or varying views on this one. Yeah. It has had mixed reviews. I mean, I've seen it from sort of two stars to five stars, uh, but it tends to sort of be around the middle, to, to be honest. I'd never seen Pygmalion before, so this was totally new to me, and it was you know, I didn't really know what to expect. I mean, other than the kind of reminiscences of the vague warblings of Audrey Hepburn and Rex mm. Harrison. So, you know, and, and I thought, yeah. well, that's not going to be a, a, a great a great guide. It's the story of Eliza Doolittle, who is a flower girl at Covent Garden. And at the start of the, the play, there's a sort of big to-do as uh, she tries to sell her flowers to well-to-do people leaving the, the theatre or the opera. Yeah. And there she meets Henry Higgins, who sort of teaches phonetics and is obsessed at placing people by where their accents come from. He sounds awful. <laughs> well, yeah. just you wait. And, uh, <laughs> just you wait. Then, <laughs> yeah. And um, there's a bit of a contrivance, but they end up, he has a, a bet with Colonel Pickering, his his colleague, uh, about whether they can take Eliza Doolittle and turn her into his words, a, a duchess or pass for a duchess. Pass for a duchess, yes. So when it opened, I've got to say, my heart initially did not sing. I was, uh, it was all quite confusing. It was a bit of a kerfuffle. I couldn't hear everything. The staging was sort of oddly stylized. Um, I, I, and throughout, really, the, the it's sort of built with soundboards yeah. on either side. It's obviously referencing the materials that Henry Higgins uses and the sounds and things like that. It's quite clever, but it didn't quite work for me. And the costumes are odd because it goes from sort of 1910s when the play was originally set to 1930s when Bernard Shaw did a sort of film version of it. Yep. Uh, and it, it dances between all sorts of different things. So it's slightly confusing, a little bit jarring. But then it all changed for me. But let me, why don't I hand over? I'm not going to dominate this. <laughs> Nick, why didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I was, I mean, I was looking forward to this hugely because I think Patsy Ferran is wonderful. Yep. You know, I think she's a tremendous actress at the beginning of the year. And what a, what extraordinary range. At the beginning of the year, she steps into Streetcar Name Desire mm. with a week's rehearsal and learns the part of Blanche And reinvents that part. Absolutely. So yeah. You know, steals the entire show. Yeah. And here she is in... Broad Cockney comedy. Yeah. She's just an actress of amazing range. Bertie Carvel is probably one of the most transformative actors yeah. out there on the scene. I think physically, I think I've never seen anyone transform. No, he, I mean he's every just time. totally different in every single yeah. thing he does. Even our greatest actors are a little bit themselves, you know, mm-hmm. in, in everything they do. But he is just totally different every time around. So I had high hopes for this. I like the work of the director Richard Jones, which is always quite stylized. Sometimes stylized to the point where you feel the actors have been sort of told. Stand there and do this, you yeah, know, yeah. and I don't want any argument from it. Um, this one, I think that the stylization is sort of slightly dialed back, but it hinges on these two very, very strong central performances, one of which worked yep. for me, Patsy Ferrans, and one of which didn't, Bertie Carvels. I mean, just stepping back from that, I mean, these are two of the absolute finest stage performers working in yeah. Britain today, I think, you know, mm. and I think whatever their choices, they're always worth watching. Mm. Yeah. So... I think that makes this show worth it alone. Yeah. And I should say, in the interest of full disclosure, I do know Bertie. I should point that out. But I just think, as you say, he's this extraordinary sort of chameleonic actor. And we're going to talk about his performance first. And I think partly because it is, as you mentioned in your review, it's, you could say it could be Marmite for some people. Yeah. He is very mannered in this. He's very clipped. He's playing 
you know, a role that is well uh, as a baddie, but also you know. almost as a cartoon. If you if you sort of think back to the, those sort of Tex Avery cartoons or whatever of Bugs Bunny conducting, mm. he's almost like that. Those sort of swooping gestures absolutely. and those, those sort of contorted um, he, he, I, body I, language. I, I, absolutely, and and I think with that you either go with it or you don't. And if you go with it uh, as I did, I found it really really rewarding. Hmm. So when he first started speaking. I thought, oh, I don't know if this is going to work for me for the whole play. Mm. And then I gave myself over to it. And as you say, it was like a conductor. He he completely dominates the stage. I found him irresistible to watch. It's an extraordinary presence. And in this role, it was sort of creepy. And mm. you thought it shouldn't be watchable, but I found it extremely watchable. But Henry Higgins is a domineering character, isn't he? He's anyway, an awful I mean, man. he's an yeah. awful, awful yeah. man but, who is like, I'm in charge. Yeah. What I'm going to do is is the right thing and everything. You know, you all just need to get on with what I'm asking. It's and just, one of the, I think one of the reasons this has had, uh, just to sort of step away mm. from the performance mm. slightly for a moment, one of the reasons, I think I was slightly baffled as to why Richard, I mean, Richard Jones always chooses really unusual things mm. to do in the theatre. So he's got a huge parallel career in opera, but he didn't an amazing government inspector at the Young Vic with Kyle Soller some years back, which was one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen. He did Molière's Le Bourgeois Gentilhomme, which has never been done mm. since then in he London. Did the Harry with Bertie Carvel? Did the Harry with Bertie Carvel? Yes, exactly. Okay. So you sort of think, why Pygmalion now? You know, it is it is a play about social mobility and and having a slightly sort of puckish attitude, suggesting that social mobility is is a myth. You know, is mm. is, is impossible. Mm. That actually, as Eliza, Eliza is spoiled by education. She's educated above her station mm. and therefore is rootless, effectively. Mm. She can't, you know, she's been bred up to expectations that, that will never be met for her and she can't go back to where she's from. Mm. That's um, true, but she sort of then, spoiler alert, takes control of her own destiny. Sort of, yes, yeah. But you I know, mean, it, it, does, it does hinge on Higgins being awful. We can argue about how much of it is a romance or a sort of subdued romance, but certainly at some point she she's brought to a space where she craves his approval. Yeah, but, she has to submit, which has yes. always been my problem with Well, and that's true, but they completely remove any romantic element from this, and I think that's a good thing, Yeah, I've got to say, because this is about power and dynamics and taking someone uh, who they just see as an object, completely remoulding them, and then throw, essentially wanting to throw them away. Mm. And I actually think there is a good reason for it to, to be staged now. I mean, the class stuff does feel, some of it feels slightly archaic, I think, and certainly the extent to which it's covered in, in Bernard Shaw, but it was written obviously over 100 years ago. Yeah. Um, but it is that sort of almost toxic men using women for their own ends yeah. in a way. And I mean, it couldn't have landed uh, <laughs> given what's in the news at the yeah. moment. I know that's yeah. a coincidence, but it sort of plays into the society we're in at the moment, I yeah. think. And I really read it in those terms. And there are two scenes that I think you should go and everyone listening to this should go and watch this play. One is the comedy the, the sheer brilliance of the two actors, of all of the actors. There's some great supporting roles as well. Yeah. John Marquez as uh, Alfred Doolittle, Sylvester Latuzel as Mrs. Higgins. Yeah. But there are, there's a brilliant comedic scene in which Patsy Ferran as Eliza Doolittle sort of comes out into society for the first time and uh, tries basically to pass. Mm. And they done, a, done her in. It yes. brings the house, absolutely brings the house. That is one of the funniest scenes I've seen in theatre. Them has done her in. Them has done her in. Yes. Absolutely brilliant. But the other scene at the other end of the scale is the sort of the denouement between them. I absolutely, you know, had my heart in my mouth for the, the entire thing. It was two actors basically going at each other um, and deconstructing each other. The two characters deconstructing each other, mm. battling against each other. And I found it absolutely mesmerizing. Yeah. And again, I would say it is worth it because I think many people will pick holes in different bits of this, whether mm. the production or, or whatever. 
But that is just brilliant, brilliant theatre. I think you're making a really, really good argument for it. And it is it is really funny still, yeah. you know, for a play written over 100 years ago, it is really funny. Um, it's very smart, very, very clever, you mm. know, all the way through as well, isn't it? Well, let's mm. talk a little bit about Patsy Yeah, Moran, of course, absolutely. Who, lest we forget, because she's become so renowned for dramatic roles, mm. um, first came to attention playing the maid in Blythe Spirit, which mm. she absolutely stole off Angela Lansbury. She nailed it. Mm. It was so funny. And that was this incredibly sort of over-the-top, wobbly performance as this sort of kooky maid. <laughs> and there's an element of that in this. Yes, there is. Eliza Doolittle is this sort of ungoverned, she's not only, you know, it's not just her language, but her physical presence is ungoverned. She's sort of all over the stage at the beginning and all over Colonel Pickering and all over, mm. you know, the, the copper who she thinks is going to arrest she's her. She's a sort of free like spirit, that. essentially. She is That's a free the, spirit, yeah. The play is about constricting her through language and social mores. And yeah. actually her performance gets much quieter and much stiller mm. as she becomes taught. Yes. Yeah, she's reduced. She's reduced. Yes. And her performance absolutely shows that. It's a wonderful, wonderful bit. And you're right to pick out the scene where she's first introduced to uh, it's an at-home of Henry yes. Higgins's mother where she, she meets the Ironsford Hills and people like that, where she's in a transitional stage where her exuberance is still coming out so mm. the sort of cockney mm. verve supersedes the sort of training when she then is sort of properly presented at the ambassador's reception she looks incredibly frail and terrified. Mm. And almost um, completely silent. She yes, hardly talks at yeah, all. she doesn't speak at all in that the, She's scene. lost her voice essentially. Yeah. yeah. Well, an interesting one for a production that has drawn mixed reviews. We've got a lot of argument out of that. I yeah, think. it will undoubtedly divide people. It will divide people, you know, themselves. I think we'll like it and hate it probably maybe in equal measure. But great theatre should challenge and, and, and I think yeah. it's worth making up your own mind on it. So there's there's obviously there's a lot of thought going on in Absolutely. this, isn't there? And, um, but, but it's obviously for some people hitting more successfully than others, yeah. as indeed for both of us. Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, I'd better go and see it. Yeah. Uh, that's on at the Old Vic until the 28th of October. Right, time for a quick break. Coming up, we'll be joined by two of the writers behind Little Big Things, the musical. Make sure to hit follow on the podcast so you never miss an episode. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Lenny Henry, and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Okay, this week on the podcast, I am joined by Nick Butcher and Tom Ling, the creators of The Little Big Things, a new musical at, at Soho Place. Welcome, Nick and Tom. Thank you very much. Thanks. Hello. We should probably explain a little bit about what this, this musical is about. Uh, Nick, do you want to tell us basically the story of it? Yeah, so The Little Big Things musical is a brand new British musical based on the Sunday Times bestselling autobiography by Henry Fraser. Henry Fraser was a 17-year-old rugby player at Dulwich College and he went on holiday with his mates to Portugal at the end of his AS levels. 
And they were on the beach and Henry dived into the sea on day five and hit his head on the seabed and damaged his vertebra. Uh, completely changed Henry's life. And Henry has used his sportsmanship mentality, his can-do attitude, to completely transform his life for the better and show us that that there's the little things in life that really do matter. Yeah. And Henry is now an incredible uh, public speaker and mouth artist. So he uses uh, a paintbrush in his mouth to paint these wonderful paintings, which are also featured in our show. Henry literally lives... 10 minutes from my house at home mm. um, and I used to play his, his brother in rugby growing up um, and I remember standing on the sidelines I just joined my new school and, and people were saying Don Fraser he's this incredible rugby player and he actually wasn't playing so we were really grateful <laughs> I think he was injured or something right. um, and people were there were like whispers of, of Henry you know being injured and at the time it was like oh you know he'd been cliff diving and all this sort of things you know how how whispers happen. Yeah. And obviously we know that it was just him on the beach, unfortunately, diving into the sea there. But yeah, I had a connection with that and my mum knows his friends and family and so it's it's something that's really, really within the community I grew up in. Yes, indeed. Yes, it's, it is an extraordinary story, as is really the way the two of you came together to uh, write this show. Um, Tom, tell us a bit about you know how that happened, how you, how you came to know each other. So I was at uh, drama school, um, sort of just finishing up. It was the summer and I remember seeing at home and I was scrolling through Twitter and I saw this tweet from Nick and it was asking for a lyricist and at the time I was working on a, a thing called uh, the Cyril Cafe which did end up at the, the other palace so I was sort of just starting to write so I thought you know what why not so I replied to the tweet I'd never replied to a tweet before and I haven't yeah. actually since and uh, we ended up meeting the next week we just talked about sort of the sort of songs we wanted to write the kind of sound that we wanted to create and we just saw eye to eye and literally the week after we were you know, texting back and forth, sending lyrical ideas, meeting up in the the School of Rock practice room, which <laughs> Nick was in at, at the time, right. and just writing all these songs and sort of producing a couple of demos ourselves, you know, putting our own money into it to, to try and get the best sort of demos we possibly could. And we used them to kind of create a bit of a platform for ourselves to, to get our names out there. I'd been a professional actor in the West End for 13 years. I did my West End debut at 19 in Lemme a Tenor at the Gilgood. Uh, i worked with Cameron McIntosh, Andrew Lloyd Webber. So I'd sort of uh, knew what mu the musical form was and I'd worked at Chichester and Sheffield with Daniel Evans and Tim Sheeder and all these amazing people. Um, but I was always looking over at the creative team whilst I was in them and sort of looking at what they were doing and, and very interested in that side of things. So when I was doing School of Rock in the West End, um, it allowed me to properly um, sort of delve into, into writing and we started writing sort of the best songs we could really without sort of the worry of having to write a full musical. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was living with a Saracens rugby player at the time, and he said, oh, you should read this book, The Little Big Things. It's uh, I play rugby with Will Fraser, Henry's brother. So ordered it on Amazon, read it within 24 hours, and there's a line in Henry's book that says, I saw a parallel version of myself getting up off the sand. And as soon as that happened, or as soon as I read that, I saw the 17-year-old the version of Henry, and that's how we came up with our two Henrys. I wrote Henry a letter, yeah. and I sent him that letter, and... Four weeks later, we were both sat in his living room and we basically said to Henry, I think we can make a show out of this. Mm. And he quite bravely just said, I trust you, go yeah. and make it happen. And then his agent, uh, who looks after J.K. Rowling, uh, they're, they're sort of big dogs and they call me in the car one day and they said, oh, we're not quite sure how you've got this far, but Henry seems to like you. <laughs> right. So we, we're going to sort of give you the rights for a little bit. Um, so that gave us permission to go away and write two songs. We wrote The Happiest Song, the, the Little Big Things, and sort of the saddest moment when he sees himself in hospital doors. So we should explain that, that Henry in the production is played by two actors mm -hmm. uh, who are sort of in dialogue with each other. The, the, an able-bodied actor, Johnny Amy's who plays Henry up to the 
accident, really, and the sort of lingering presence of his younger self. And uh, Ed Larkin, who is a wheelchair-using actor who plays Henry after the accident, doesn't he? Yeah. How did that idea come about? Tom, if you could tell us. Well, just from from that line in the book, um, because a lot of the show is essentially about... Henry's one of his slogans is is sort of accept and adapt, mm. one of his mantras. And we wanted that to be kind of the crux of the show, you know, to accept this new life and adapt to what you can do. And that's sort of the central conflict of the show. That it's not about letting go of Boy, but it's about accepting his new life and learning to live with Boy and, and letting him, you know, one of the lines in the show is is letting them sort of drift into the background. So you're always carrying that past life with you, but it doesn't sort of overwhelm you or overcome you and you just sort of learn to live with it and, and look forward with what yeah. you can do. Also, this is all going on effectively under lockdown, isn't it? A lot of it. Absolutely. And we got offered uh, to go to Goodspeed musicals in Connecticut in America mm. just before the pandemic uh, to write the first draft of this. So we were on the Connecticut River in January 2020 mm-hmm. and we were there with Michael R. Jackson who wrote A Strange Loop, Miranda yeah. Cooper who wrote Fantastically Great Women, uh, Karen Hersey who wrote Spirited and they basically bring all these writers from around the world and they put them in houses and at 8 a.m. every morning you have a bagel and then you go away and write <laughs> the song and you come back at 6 p.m. and you have to perform it to each other. So everyone just performs what they wrote that day. Yeah, yeah. And, musical uh, boot camp by the exactly. sound of it. Yeah. Um, awesome. And that's where we wrote the first draft and we were out there with Joe. Book Joe writer. is the book writer, we should say, shouldn't we? The playwright Joe White who is, you... Yeah, is yeah. the book writer. Incredible book writer. It's his first musical. You know, he's very much a playwright. And he took a chance on this. You know, when he first read it, he wasn't sure. He, you know, he had question marks whether he could do it. And it's just been it's just been amazing working with him because he's been so adaptable as we've all sort of, as new writers, as a new writing team, try to figure out what's the best way to do this. You know, you're sort of figuring each other out, figuring out the process, and, and working with him has just been amazing because he's just, uh, in my opinion, gone from strength to strength in terms of his writing in, in the musical form. And the result is a book that really, really lifts up the songs. And I, I think is you know, everything is really, really well put together because our collaboration has been, there's sort of not really any egos. It's been very much like everything can be discussed, every song, every scene. This is another first in musical theatre, I think. <laughs> I know. But it's, it's, like so it's spearheaded it's been... by Luke Shepard, who, is, yeah, who yeah. is just so wonderful and is sort of all over every department. So yeah. uh, sort of about marrying all the different elements, um, which is so key to to building a new musical sort of a bit serendipity as well my agent or our agent that we signed with at the time went in to meet legendary West End producer Michael Harrison about another project and many years earlier I'd done a production of Barnum for Michael Hmm. and as my agent left his office he opened the door and there was a picture of me on the 300th show with Brian Connolly at the front and he went oh oh yeah uh, I look after Nick Butcher as a writer now I don't know if you know he went yeah yeah, I knew he was doing some stuff what do you want to do and he said we want to do the show called The Little Big Things based on the autobiography by Henry Fraser and he was like sit back down and he sat back down Hmm. and he said tell me the story play me some songs and Michael went on holiday and he just said I couldn't stop listening to to the songs and he sent us an email it literally said I'm 100% in no full stop no kiss no nothing and that from that moment on Michael Harrison has been 100% committed It's the little big things you leave behind. I must say, we 
part of bringing on Joe was also bringing on Nikki Miles Wilding, who's our dramaturg and associate, and uh, is a wickedly funny um, human being who who flew over the Olympic Stadium during the um, Olympic ceremony. And Nikki really helped us navigate telling a disabled story. Right. Um, and that was really important. And there was no other way we would have done it but making sure that every every part of our journey of developing this musical was inclusive and had actors with lived experience and creative team. And that goes through to like our band. Mm-hmm. Our band is 50-50 gender splits, diversity in every element. And it, it's not even a tick box. It's like, well, that's just what this show is going to do and it deserves. And I've, I know I've mentioned this quote from uh, Rob Ashford, the director, once said to me in an interview, I've mentioned this before in the podcast, that... Um, in musicals, it's it's important that people get to an emotional pitch where they no longer speak and they start to sing, and then they get to a stage where they, singing isn't enough and they start dancing as well. And here, they start flying. You mm-hmm. see a man in a wheelchair mm-hmm. fly in this show, don't you? Which I thought was extraordinary. Yeah, it's it's part of Luke Shepard's genius, I think, of elevating the show to the next level and, and doing the unexpected. Mm. And at every turn, sort of catching the audience out and thinking, where can we go where they don't think we're going to go? It's a really beautiful moment. Henry's painting is painting he's used all the little things which in our show are colours and then by the guide you he's used all the colours that leak from inside of you Yeah, and he paints this wonderful last painting which I won't give it away but it's quite emotional when it, when it's revealed in the show and he's flying in the air and, and painting his final painting I should say this isn't too much of a spoiler there are actually photographs of this outside the theatre so if you were going in it wouldn't be <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. not destroying everybody's uh, everybody's experience <laughs> the show by, by revealing this but I found that an extremely moving moment and something that I've never seen before in the West End what's next is it more life for little big things or the two of you working on another project I think we're still sort of trying to figure that out I think at the moment it's kind of like this has been an incredibly uh, moving and overwhelming experience and just to reiterate what you know Nick said and I heard on the podcast a few weeks ago you talking about freelancers after COVID and how was the, there was this sort of shift in kind of producers taking a chance on mm. people and I feel like that's really really important and Michael has never wavered in his support of us and to support a brand new team like this all the way through to the West End stage and, and have that trust. And it wasn't even him coming in, giving us notes every day and, and changing things. He honestly sort of just let us get on with it. And he'd come in and he'd read a draft and he'd go, OK, this one little thing. And it would be like the perfect note. And we'd go away and it would grow and grow and grow. So, you know, it's been um, a novel experience for us a really really amazing sometimes overwhelming experience and I think we're just sort of uh, enjoying it while it lasts <laughs> just yeah, breathing actually, just there's nothing breathing more exciting than yeah. being in, in the middle of like a tornado in the West End when you feel the buzz around you uh, we've had the most exciting couple of weeks yeah. and Twitter is talking and everyone's talking about the show so that is just the biggest compliment really and we're, we're super excited in a dream scenario who would be the, the sort of West End star or celebrity you'd like to work with now I want to work with Hannah Waddingham I think she's coming into her own and she is an example of the amazing theatre actresses that we have in this country and when they get their spotlight to shine they really take it and I'm just I'd love to work with Hannah Tom Hugh Jackman (laughs) (laughs) no seriously I watched you know I watched him do uh, Oklahoma Um, I watched a recording of that at the National when I was at GSA and I remember watching it because I knew him from films and everything and I was just like absolutely blown away and I couldn't Mm. quite believe what I was seeing um, and of course, he's just gone from strength to strength, and he's just an incredible performer. So I just think having a show with him in it would Should just we be write a two-hander for Hugh Jackman. Yeah. <laughs> I think just bring the music man over, put them both in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's the way it. to do it, I suppose. But no, do, no, do your it, own yeah. thing, though. Yes, you're right. <laughs> brilliant. Well, thank you both for coming in. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let's go to the ads. Coming up in part two, we review Beautiful Thing at Theatre Royal Stratford East. See you in a sec. 
I'm Caitlin Fitzgerald, and you are listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. So, Beautiful Thing at Theatre Royal Stratford East. This is by Jonathan Harvey and directed by Anthony Simpson-Pike. I did not see this one, but Nancy, you did. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I saw it last night. Well, it's I didn't see it the first time around. This was first produced in 1993. Uh, so this is, its uh, along with Nick, its 30th, year, 30th anniversary. <laughs> I mean, on the face of it, it's just a very sweet play about two young lads falling for each other and navigating their nascent sexuality. I was talking about it with my friend afterwards, who's the same age as me. I didn't find it deeply moving, but I did come out very much admiring it as a thing, especially of its time. Yeah. So I don't know if you remember how homophobic the 90s were. Yeah. Like, I was 15 in 1993, and the two protagonists of this play are 16, like just 16. Yeah. I remember how homophobic just the casual discourse was. You know, I was at an all-girls school in Manchester, there's boys' school around the corner. And I remember if someone was thought to be gay... Um, certainly in my school. Mm. I mean, there wasn't there wasn't outright bullying as far as I'm aware. That doesn't mean it didn't happen, mm. but as far as I'm aware. But it was like whispered about as something weird. You know, at the same time, a couple of years later, we were all gaping in awe at the drag queens and the sort of fag end of the days of the Hacienda. But mm. I don't think it was like that for the lads. I think it was a lot worse. Yeah. So for a gay story like this to hit the stage at that time and the two main characters not to be gripped by internalised shame mm. yeah. and for there to be a beautiful, hopeful ending, which is what Jonathan Harvey set out to do. It must have been it's like a, a flower blooming in a landscape. I think it was a huge a huge political act. Well, what we should also mention at this stage is Clause 28, which had come in four or five years before this was written. Of course. The Thatcher era legislation, which, which forbade the promotion of uh, homosexuality as a pretend family relationship. I think that was the... Uh, Mm. That, that was the wording. But basically, it was just used to sort of repress gay yeah, disgusting stories. Words. And that was a huge thing in the in the theatre world at the time. You know, Also, the other thing about this play is it's set on a London council estate. Yeah. Um, they mentioned Bermondsey in this. I, I, thought, I thought at one point, I thought they said they were in Thamesmead. Yeah. But anyway, it's sort of South, yeah, London, South London council estate. Yeah. Um, I think some twigs oh, no, might no, no. Been... She said he was the most beautiful baby in Bermondsey, which ah. is when he was born, which was 16 <coughs> okay. years before. Well, so, there we yeah. go. Anyway, now we've worked out. But you're, you're absolutely right. But so... So to have a council estate story of working class people having a gay romance and it to be celebratory rather than tragic was also a huge political act at the time. And, you know, a great move forward. Most of the 80s gay stories were also, you know, people being unhappy and tragedy and... Mm. and, we should remember also that, you know, um, the AIDS crisis hit in the early 80s. Mm. So a lot of stories were still reacting to that and yeah. still yeah. sort of processing that. Yeah. In 1993, to write basically a pure and simple celebratory, very funny romance set on a council estate between two young gay lads uh, is just an extraordinary political I can't act. imagine how important it was to young gay men at that time. I mean, let's talk about the play. It's Let's talk about what we saw. It, yeah. is, a, it is a period piece very yes. much, isn't it? It's yes. a little state, you know, nobody's got a phone. I don't think more than 30% of the audience understood the reference to Bob's Full House. Oh, fancying <laughs> Bill Beaumont. Oh, no. It's very funny because my friend and I were sitting at the end of a row which was full of teenagers. There was a huge sort of wit school group which is weird for a press night and we were the two who sort of like fell about laughing when yeah. she said that. <laughs> yes, quite. Like, yep, but, you're right. It's, pre, it's pre-mobiles. It's at a certain stage in, in gay culture, I think, as yeah, well. Yeah, it's got these two young characters, Stee, is um, a sort of sports mad lad who lives next door to Jamie, the other one, and Steve's dad is a violent drunk and mm-hmm. his brothers are violent as well yes. and homophobic. The fear that he is gripped by is the fear of violence from them that's contained within 
the, the house as in, in the play. It's not to do with his own sort of shame or anything like that. But it's still very present and it's still very present now. So it is dated, mm-hmm. but at the same time, not dated enough. Yes, yes, it's true. It's dated, but in quite a charming way. Yeah. Um, I mean, let's talk about the performances a bit yeah. as well. I thought they were mostly lovely, mm-hmm. especially the younger characters. Steve is played by uh, Raphael Akawudike and Jamie by Rilwan Abiola Awokaniran. Um, Steve, Raphael, I thought, had just that needed level of awkwardness. And I thought you could see kind of Jamie, played by Rilwan, coming sort of coming into his instinctive flamboyance over the course of the play in a very subtle way as he gets more comfortable with his sexuality. Yeah. I thought that was really nicely done. And I loved Scarlett Rayner as Leah. She was this great sort of pent-up ball of frustration and bad education and insecurity and like a girl with nowhere to go and nothing to do. She's been excluded from school. Yeah. She lives, you know, she lives with her mum, but she's kind of got a total free reign, which means that she's completely aimless. And you could see that in her, but also she was very funny. She's the least convincing character for me, I think. It's, it's like a character, sort of yeah. But character. I thought but she yeah, did her best with The it. performance is great. That's That, again, is something I wonder how much this has been tweaked because they talk about her being excluded and I don't think that was no, a No, she would have been expelled. Yes. I don't know why they didn't say I, I th- again, again back looking in the back. 30s. Sorry. <laughs> How old are you now? Uh, <laughs> extensive skincare regime. <laughs> again, I think, but yeah, it was 30 years ago. I don't think the term exclusion ago, was, was used. Um, she's, a, she's a sort of uh, period piece within a period piece because yeah. she's obsessed with Mama Cass. Yeah, yeah, she is. It's really funny. Uh, which is strange. I presume that just Jonathan Harvey had a real thing about Mama Cass, all the mamas and the papas, and decided to sort of bestow that. On, on this character, you know, in, in in this play. Jonathan Harvey was 25 years old when he wrote this, by the yeah. way. So it's an extraordinarily assured piece for a 25-year-old, I think. Yeah, yeah, as exactly. Well. But the young woman is a bit thin. She's she a bit, thin. She bit um, thin. But she was extremely fun playing a girl off her face. Yes. <laughs> yes. That was that was great. That is, that, that's true. That's that very funny. And um, you can see sort of in her some of the DNA of the Kathy Burke character in Gimme, 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 yeah. the, um, the sitcom that Jonathan Harvey wrote. I loved uh, Tony, the boyfriend, t- uh, pointing out his new wheels in the, in the car park downstairs, which he describes as gravy brown. That <laughs> 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 was a sort of desirable colour for a minivan in 1993. Um, and I, I really like Shawnee Marks as uh, Sandra as well. Did you? Because yeah. I found her a bit one note, actually. Yeah. I, thought I wasn't always convinced by I, her. I, I, again, I think the female characters are not the best delineated yeah, ones yeah, here, yeah. but I, I like the sort of energy of her performance. Thinly and drawn. I don't know. I mean, I, I as you say, it's dated and things have improved, but things have also not improved as much as, we, as we'd have liked. And I love the fact that everybody here is trying to understand. There isn't, yeah. you know, the bad characters are all off stage here. You know, yeah. they're the violent, drunk dad and, uh, you know, they're the people we never see. And I love that even the boys are trying to understand it. You know, they're buying copies of Gay Times and you know, looking for ads for, for pubs they can drink in or reading the problem pages. where one. It's really <laughs> sort of sweetly earnest. You know, it is seen as this landmark play, obviously. And um, 30 years on, the drama itself and the the narrative and all that for someone who's never seen it before. Does it really work? Yeah, yeah it, I think it, it does. It, it, it describes a fairly shallow arc, I would mm-hmm. say. There's not, yeah. you know, a huge amount of, of event or, you know, character development. But it's a very neat and beautifully formed, beautiful thing of a play, I think, Yeah, really. it is lovely. So it does hang together. And there's a, another thing that we, 
won't spoil it, the curtain call, but I think the curtain call is really special. Yeah. Oh, lads, I saw Red Pitch on, like, Ooh, on yeah. Monday. Yeah, it's really good. It's really good. They said last week it's really good. It's really, really good. So and that sort of, again, is very much of its time. And that time is right now. I mean, it couldn't be more of the now. And this obviously was very much of its time then. It has a certain sort of staginess that something like Red Pitch doesn't have, despite mm. the fact that it's got moments of um, contemporary dance movement mm. type thing in it. But ultimately, I think it's just really important that these stories are told and told again yeah. and that new ones are written. You know, that these boys are normal. Understanding that needs to be normalised. Yeah. Plays like this are part of that. There's a, thre- there's a thread possibly connecting the two in that they are celebrating people who have not are not always necessarily celebrated yeah, exactly. by the culture. Especially now with people and, of colour and talking about beautiful thing, particularly that they've changed the casting, mm. you know, this sort of adds that in as well. And yeah. yeah, it's it's really you're quite right. I think it's just uh yeah, these stories just need to keep being told and it's just it's just really sweet. It's really sweet it's really sweet. <laughs> go and go and see it. And it's and yeah. it's 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 sort of um it was done originally at the Bush in West London. It's now being done at Stratford East in, yeah. in East London. It's set in South London, you know, whether it's Bermondsey or Thamesmead. Um, there's something nicely universal about it. You know, yeah. it does seem to sort of sit very neatly in, in lots of different communities. I know, I feel like it could be a council set in Birmingham. Yeah. I mean, it could be anywhere. When's it on till, Nick? Can you remember? It is on till Saturday the 7th of October, so go see it. And that's it for this week's episode of the Evening Standard Theatre podcast. Check out all our other episodes below, which include interviews with Surian McKellen and Roger Allen, uh, Jenna Coleman, Eddie Izzard, Tim Minchin, and many more. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Thanks, as ever, to our producer, Rachel Abbott, and we'll see you next Sunday. 